interest to everybody tonight. So we're making a transition tonight as we take our study of right view and right intention and then see in more and more concrete ways how view and intention in the mind gets expressed in terms of action. Action in the form of speech, action in the form of deeds out there in the world, and action in terms of how we take care of ourselves, with what we normally call livelihood. But, you know, livelihood is really about how we manage the details of survival. The choices, the sometimes challenging or difficult choices we have to make in order to sustain ourselves in the world. So, um, I think a long time ago I read an article, probably Gil Franzdell isn't the first person, but he w- I read his article and I think a number of teachers used this basic approach to sila, this whole world of action, how our practice, mindfulness, manifests in terms of our actions in the world, ethical conduct, the integrity of our actions. And they talk about that practice involving, like bringing mindfulness into the world of action, involving restraint and involving sort of directing the mind and its thoughts and its words and its actions, sort of directing in a positive direction, aiming in a positive direction, aspiring in a positive direction. I want to do something good. I want to teach tonight in a way that's valuable or useful. Or I want to learn something tonight that will make me a better person, a better partner, a better citizen, a better human being. So we take it into the world. And sometimes the way we practice being skillful is we're just restraining. So on the on the basic level where we have some understanding that it's easy to harm ourselves and others, it's easy to do stupid things that harm ourselves, harm others. So that's really the world of restraint, like We might even have, you know, at this more primal level of practicing ethical conduct, you know, we might have this sense of the mind and body and the sort of collection of uh, emotions and tendencies. It's like a wild beast that needs to be contained or, you know, sort of uh, controlled. And on that level, and it's not the only level, of course, we use, we need restraint. You know, cage, cage that beast. <laughs> you know, get that beast away from that trigger because if you don't, it's going to do something stupid. You know, so shut that off or leave the room or don't go there again. Things like that. I have that relationship with alcohol. You know, I was never terrible drugs and alcohol, but you know, it's always like, you know, if you're going to drink, you know, it doesn't taste that good. You, you're drinking to have the effect. So it's like, well, this little effect, I can have a little bit more and have a bigger effect. You know, and it's sort of that, uh, um, yeah, this part of our mind that likes things that are dramatic, that are big. So... Oh, don't do that, because that always leads to a mess. So then there's another part of ethical conduct, this whole world of sila, that isn't so much about containing the wild beast of our mental tendencies. It's more like it's a deeper understanding of karma. One under sort of the base level understanding of karma is we better be careful or the unwholesome tendencies of the mind are going to draw us into some kind of behavior or action that, you know, won't necessarily be easy to crawl out of. 
we'll get ourselves in a hole that won't be so easy to get out of. Then a more, a more, you know, sophisticated or subtle deepening understanding of karma is we realize that not only are there negative holes that we can fall into, but they're really beautiful, positive expressions of this body and mind that once they're realized, discovered, we can keep directing the mind, this life, in that direction. And uh, so this is sort of the positive side of that, where it's all about remembering, like remembering love. We can go through the whole day and forget that my heart can be loving. It's really astounding because it works so well when we're going through the day and remembering that this heart can include, can be generous. And yet, it's just amazing how easy it is to forget that. So part of this, the second part of sila practice is really remembering uh, what this heart is capable of. It's it's having a positive, um, like a sense of self-worth, I think we use that, self-esteem, but in a deeper, more spiritual sense, it's understanding the potential of the heart. These, in Buddhism, we call them these immeasurables, right? To express an immeasurable kindness or compassion or joy or equanimity and all the other beautiful qualities like an immeasurable gratitude, appreciation, or an immeasurable sense of forgiveness, understanding how easy it is for this person and all other people to make mistakes. And then there's even, I think, a more subtle expression of sila, which would, what could be called an effortless expression of sila. It's interesting, sila in Buddhism is considered, there's two uh, ways the Buddha talked about this. One way was, sila has a particular fragrance that is unmistakable. So somebody who has that integrity of wise view, deep wise understanding, moving into wise intention, into wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise actions in the world, that that integrity has a particular fragrance that's unmistakable and fills the space of the universe. So that even the devas, the, you know, in Buddhism they have this very beautiful, I think, and uh, elaborate cosmological view. You know, many realms of existence and uh, not just kind of normal uh, angelic celestial realms that, you know, we hear of in a lot of uh, cultural traditions, spiritual, religious, cultural traditions, but even more refined, disembodied states of universal love, beings without bodies, without even an energetic body, just pure love and other sort of formless realms. And uh, all these levels are moved by the fragrance of a living being who has this beautiful, beautiful integrity, where their speech, their actions, the way they take care of their life <coughs> is <coughs> not deviating from wise view. <coughs> so again, wise view has these different components from, you know, relatively basic level of rise view to the deepest level. So on a basic level, rise wise view understands that it's easy to fall into states of health. You know, to say something that then we end up for years and years deeply regretting. And we to some degree live in a state of health in that pain of regret. I shouldn't have said that to my mom. She was just doing the best she could. Or whatever, you know those times where we've said something or didn't say something that needed to be said. And on a more subtle level, wise view is understanding the difference between skillful and unskillful. So not only avoiding the unskillful, but 
beginning to appreciate all these skillful expressions of the heart and, and mind. This whole like arena opens up like there could be something really beautiful here. It's not just about avoiding mistakes, but, but through skillful, you know, understanding and action, I, so still on a self level, I could create something truly beautiful, worthy of appreciating our own heart. So not just appreciating the saints out there, but really having a sense of what this heart is capable of. And it's not even so much that it's personal, but it is truly beautiful. So this in a a spiritual sense is real self-esteem. Seeing what the heart, this life, is capable of. And then the last level of right view um, is is more the the understanding of the reality of non-grasping. So that whatever beauty that can manifest in our heart, in our actions, in the world, that it's not personal. It's like it's nature itself that's beautiful. That nobody has to own this beauty or be responsible for this beauty. That actually the fullest expression of the beauty is getting out of the way, arises when you get out of the way. And it has to unfold in that way. We can't just go right there because that would be so easy, you know, just to go to the effortless expression of beauty and goodness and be done. But that would be an aversive move for most of us because it's like, I don't want to do the work of noticing the danger there is with my tendencies of mind. It's like, don't act out defensiveness in that situation because you'll just set something in motion that will just get stickier and stickier. Or, you know, really trying to do something beautiful. Like tonight, my sits, the first one, and then just this last one, you know, just trying to, using the repetition of the word love, just remembering that in every moment, it is possible to find the intention of love, either as expressed as a receiving unconditionally, or a giving unconditionally, and just trying to sustain that recollected that recollection, not forgetting it, not forgetting, it, and using the word or words to help in that recollecting, that not forgetting of that intention of love. So that's the work of. There is something beautiful that can be expressed and set in motion here, and it's good for me, and it's good for everybody else. But it's still effortful, as I have to remember. So the the final expression of wise view is uh, taking the independent agent out of the picture of right view, somebody who wants to express something beautiful. Ajahn Jayasara, one of the senior Western uh, monks in the Thai forest tradition, one of the students, disciples of Ajahn Chah, who still mostly lives in Thailand, he said, when there appears to be a conflict between our welfare and another, usually, uh, usually it's a sign of confusion regarding the nature of welfare. I think this is important too, like, uh, one of the things that trips us up in the world of sila, ethical conduct, like right speech, is that, uh, you know, we think there's a conflict between taking care of myself, speaking my truth, and taking care of everybody else. And it's like, well, I have to decide. You know, am I going to take care of myself this time? Or am I going to take care of everybody else at this time? And that's that we're still in that world of the first two levels of wisdom, of right view, where like we're, we know I can make a mistake and we don't want to make a mistake, so there's that wholesome concern there. You know, theory, otapa, wholesome concern and wholesome regret. Theory means wholesome concern and otapa means wholesome regret. And this is that 
wholesome kind of fear in the mind or wholesome tightness like that's that first level of wisdom like knowing we can make a big mistake don't do it be careful fortunately it's not the only level but we want to we want to stay open to the possibility that we can take care of ourselves and take a care and take care of everybody else and it doesn't have to be a conflict it doesn't have to be a problem living in a way uh, where our response is appropriate and just even intellectually we can understand it like when the heart is wide open unconditionally open, not under the influence of any sense of separation, then that mind, that heart, its response is naturally going to come from that openness, from the absence of boundaries, the absence of distinctions and evaluations of good and bad. So that response will be wholesome or beautiful and it's not going to favor one over another because it's coming out of the whole, the whole picture. Now we know this already because we know that when we're in a sticky situation where we have to choose or we have to do something and because maybe a lot of fear is up for us, our mind gets narrow and we realize, I mean it's so obvious sometimes, especially in hindsight, our response is really limited by the narrowness of our perspective. If we feel personally threatened, then that pain of that threat and the fear, it limits how we see the choices, how we're going to respond. But when uh, when we're aware of like what's been triggered, like the primal emotions that have been triggered, but because we're not identifying with those painful emotions that have gotten triggered, we feel them, we're aware of them. But the mind, the awareness or the mindfulness can also notice everybody else and, the, and, and, and to it what's getting triggered in them or appreciate that they're also getting triggered in their own way given their conditioning. And that we're all here getting uh, triggered. We're all here feeling the pain that we're feeling, feeling, knowing the experience of confusion that's there and everything else that's arising. So with more wisdom, you know, it's like what we say in that moment, how we respond in that moment, it's much more skillful than when we're simply defined by our reaction to our fear, to the pain in our heart. It really limits us in terms of how we're going to respond in any moment. So we want to hold out this possibility that um, wise speech and then more generally wise action, our livelihood, we don't want to immediately believe that it's you know a matter of allegiance, like either I take care of myself or I'm taking care of the world at large. That there may be a way to speak, a way to act, a way to earn our livelihood, to take care of our needs to survive in a way that's actually beautiful and enlivening and liberating. So this is what we hold out. So in this world that is so clearly messy and so clearly has trade-offs, when I'm eating an apple, that means you're not eating that apple. Nobody else gets that apple when I'm eating it. And uh, when I, you know, bury my trash over here, you know, that affects everybody because that means that spot's got my trash in the ground there. So this world, you know, is limited. You know, as creatures, we're all, in a sense, competing for air and water and food and space and all kinds of things, other things, allegiances, you know, friendships. So it, it just, it's easy for us to draw the conclusion that, well, it's just going to be, our actions are going to be messy. They're going to be hurtful and harmful. 
And in a way, capitalism comes out of this like, well, it's the most efficient way, and it might be, I'm not denying that. Um, but I think one of the conclusions that comes out of it is that it's okay to take advantage. It's okay to have a closed heart, or it's okay to be mean-spirited. It's just, you know, there's no way around it, so just accept it, you know, that you're going to be manipulating others or you're going to be causing harm to others. So, objectively speaking, our uh, uh, Buddha, let's say a fully awake human being who's teased out, uprooted all greed, anger, delusion from their mind. So, her actions in the world might, um, you know, she might step on a plant and cause that plant to die and uh, inadvertently brush a mosquito off and, uh, you know, end up taking things that to keep her body healthy that maybe could be better used somewhere else. So in that sense, there are trade-offs even for a fully awake person. But what I think we want to hold out is the beauty, you know, like I, I was saying that, the fragrance of that person's life and also another way they talk about this in Buddhism is sila, this integrity from view through intention to action is the most beautiful adornment. You know, more than any other kind of beauty, this integrity is the most beautiful thing in the world. So on this level of reality, the most beautiful thing is this integrity from wise view, wise intention, wise action. That that can be really beautiful even in this very messy world of trade-offs. We want to hold that out. Because actually this then is the training ground of our lives. And it's really important because a lot of what Westerners are interested in in terms of Buddhism is meditation and getting quiet and having really nice, peaceful, blissful states in their meditation. But as important as that is, it's really important to learn how to quiet the mind, learn how to have this powerful therapeutic healing that comes from having quiet states of mind, beautiful inner states of mind. As powerful and important as that is, it's even more important than to go into the messy world, to be a parent, to have relationships, to try to take care of people who are in need, to respond, to engage. Because this is where we refine what we've learned by going into secluded, quiet places and learn how to basically learn that there is something beautiful here. That middle part of the sila practice is like it's relatively easy for me to be a loving human being when all I have is my imagination. <laughs> I can sit here, you know, and I can be really loving. But when somebody makes me defensive, it's not so easy to be loving, you know, because I, I'm taking it personal. The pain I'm feeling in my heart, I'm almost as if I'm imagining that person's hitting me. And I may intellectually know they're not really hitting me, they're not really trying to hurt me, but emotionally it feels like they're out to get me. And so the tendency, the strong tendency is to either want to take my toys and go home or, um, you know, hit back. So we want to hold out this possibility that with wise speech that and wise action, wise livelihood, that there can be something very beautiful. And it doesn't depend on the world not being messy. And ultimately, the messiness helps us to find that which is really beautiful, this beautiful adornment or this beautiful fragrance, this unforgettable experience of integrity, where the deepest, um, the deepest understanding <clears throat> of the mind and all of the movements of the mind and tensions in the mind and all of the outward expressions of the body and mind, Perfect alignment 
and a perfect alignment with nature that has no center, right? So that the reason that integrity is so beautiful is precisely because it's coming out of the whole. That's what makes it so beautiful. All sense of separation and its influence on our action has been teased out. That's what we mean by integrity. That's what we mean by actions being tied into the deepest understanding. So it is really nature, it's expressing itself. That's why when you're just, when the mind is really clear and you hear the sound of a cardinal or feel a breeze or feel the earth, you know, the mud squeezing between your toes or smile at somebody or see somebody smile at you. But but what you're really seeing in those beautiful transforming moments is you're seeing the absence of a center. And that's what makes it so beautiful. And that's the ultimate expression of our lives. So I really, you know, I'm excited in a way, in a dharmic way, uh, for me personally and for all of us to, you know, take this time to reignite our interest in speech. We'll talk about it again next week and you'll have small groups next week to share. So I, I sent three things out via email and also up on our webpage. Uh, one is uh, 12 reflections and you can just choose one or two of them uh, that you might seem most relevant to you or come up with your own reflection and then uh, use it as a way to build some materials, both your deepening of your own understanding but also what you might share in the group. And then the other is just a collection of all the Buddhist teachings on why speech or right speech. So I'll make sure that that goes through. And then the third thing was an article on right action. Um, So I'll make sure that those links get corrected. But just to review these reflections for why speech, so you can begin to think about them and we can carry this into a large group discussion too. So the first one, and you'll have a copy either in your inbox or you can go to the website buddhaststudies.kamagrammeditation.org. So the first one is about committing to truth. And uh, it's like interesting to think about truth. Remember, the Buddha talks about right speech in four ways. The non-falseness of the speech, it's truthful. Uh, it's not slander, so it's kindly. It's not harsh. The tone is not harsh. It's not harmful. You know, like harsh speech is like a punch. Speech is a, a movement of energy. And it hurts. I mean, Sylvia Borstein in one of her books, you know, asked the question. I think she was just remembering a time in a, in a group like this where she asked the question. Um, you know, raise your hand if you can remember some words that were spoken to you that still hurt now. And, you know, she says, like, yeah, everybody rose, raised their hand because we can probably all remember something somebody said to us and it still smarts even after 20 years or 30 years. You know, when we bring it to mind, oh yeah, that hurts. So, You know, words, they are a force to be reckoned with. So we want to think about both the negative and the positive side of speech. So the truthfulness of it, uh, the kindliness of it, or avoiding using it as a weapon, whether to, uh, you know, the, the tone itself is like a punch, or the meaning of the words, slashing, cutting, or even the uselessness of the words can be harmful, like idle speech. Or you're just, it's like a form, I think, think of it as a form of stealing, like when you're engaged in idle speech, sometimes, you know, and you'll, each of us will be a little bit different, but we are filling up the space, the space with idle speech because maybe we're just having some pain and we don't want to feel it, feel the pain, so we just keep talking. Or we're needy, we, we're looking for something from somebody, like wanting them to think we're smart. So we keep, you know, doing something. 
talk to him in some way. But there are many kinds of idle speech that we can just begin to notice. And of course, it's not about judging ourselves. It's just getting a little bit clearer. And remember, these gross expressions in our life, like our speech and our actions in the world, they we want to trace them back. Like, what are the underlying intentions that have led to these words being spoken? And what's the underlying view that supports the arising of those intentions that lead me to say, want to say these words? Whether I'm saying them silently in my mind or actually out there in the world. So the first one about truth is just to be reflecting on, well, what is our commitment to truth? Now, truth isn't something that anybody can own. In uh, Reb Anderson's book, um, Being Upright, which I think is a fantastic book, by the way, he wrote it a while back on the 14 Bodhisattva trainings, which really have a lot to do with sila. And so, kind of a longer version of the five lay precepts. And a more positive version, you know, the lay five precepts more like are pointing at the, the level of restraint. Like don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual misconduct, don't lie, and don't intoxicate your mind in ways that lead to carelessness. But, you know, in a more positive way, this commitment to truth, like it's our one, it is the way out of suffering. It's the lack of commitment to truth that leads the mind to basically lie to itself. That's what, you know, when I talked about view earlier in the talk tonight, that the first one, the first level of wisdom is seeing that I can fall into hole. I can fall into hell if I'm not careful. I can do something that will cause me and others a lot of suffering. And it's the not believing that that's like telling herself a lie. Like thinking, I can watch this, I can do this, and it has no consequences. That's a lie. It's a lack of commitment to truth that the mind says, well, you can do that, you're absolutely right, but there will be consequences to doing that. And you may not know the consequences, but that doesn't mean there aren't consequences, because you can know those consequences if you bring your attention to the issue at hand, the consequences, the, what this leads to will be revealed. It's all right there. It's all right here. It's just, one just needs to be honest with oneself that what we do, what we think, what we intend matters. But we, it's just a lot more convenient to pretend or imagine it doesn't matter because it takes us off the hook of having to pay attention. They have to be reflective of what kind of attitude we're allowing to be there in the heart because we think it doesn't matter much. So, you know, in different ways we can reflect on truth and how it isn't something we can own, but it's more of a, a direction. That's a, the better way to think about this commitment to truth. It's a commitment to a particular direction. And it's interesting, you know, you probably have heard of the Jataka tales, but if not, there are these uh, collections of stories that came up after the time of the Buddha about his previous lifetime. So it's a whole set of mythical tales, probably. Um, maybe they're real, but they seem pretty mythical. About the previous lives of the Buddha as he developed the qualities of mind so that when he took birth, in the birth that he became the Buddha, he had all of these underlying tendencies of mind so that when he had his deep insight, he had all these personality qualities that allowed him to be a really powerful teacher and also allowed him to have the deep insight. And it's said, you know, in these Jataka tales that although he made a lot of mistakes in these countless lifetimes on his way to becoming this Buddha, this awake person, he never broke the precept of uh, not lying, not sort of deviating from his commitment to truthfulness. 
which is sort of interesting, you know, how that's really held out. So this is something you could do this week, is just look at your relationship, like how much do you care about the accuracy of your speech? And when you realize that you've said something that's not quite true, do you care much about correcting that or fixing that? Are you willing to bend and leave out certain facts? So just how loose is the mind or how dedicated is the mind to this direction of truth, moving in the direction of what is in alignment with the way things are. Another reflection, this is a little bit more grounded or a little easier, is just getting interested in all the little and big ways we practice interrupting in speech. And and its relationship to boredom and impatience and other aversive qualities. And controlling, you know, t- controlling tendencies. So that's that's just a, you know, if we can just highlight being interrupted and interrupting others. Another, I think, for me and maybe a lot of us, is just the play of power. And this comes, too, with the tone of voice and body language and how I was mentioning earlier how speech is energy. And when we're speaking to another human being, we're kind of in this jousting match. Even even in very playful speech, it's, you know, like when you watch two puppies, you know, or two animal, young animals, or two kids, you know, kind of playing with each other, there's a little mini war there. And uh, a lot is being learned. What is being learned? We're learning how to play with power. And it's the same with this mental repartee back and forth, you know, as we often do in life. We're, we're playing with energy. And the question is, like, can we reflect on it as a play of power? And then what does our mind do like when it sees weakness? Somebody's made a mistake. You know, and the critical mind, like, they probably want me to point this out. (laughs) You know, or even if we don't point it out, like, uh, maybe we're a little parental, you know, about them being mistaken or whatever. Or what do we do when we catch ourselves in a mistake? How do we cover it up? So all of the different power games, just to see our speech in terms of a play of power. Because it's always going to be about that. It's not the only truth there is, but that's just on this level, this base level of being a beast, it's very much about the play of power. And to sort of pretend that that's not true is to be disconnected. So we want to really ground on that level and not be afraid of it and learn how to be skillful, learn how to bring the qualities of love and non-attachment so that love and non-attachment doesn't require no power. Like, how does what does love look like, real love and compassion look like in this play of power? What does non-attachment look like in this play of power? So that's another way to reflect on wise speech. Another is all the different ways we use flattery, exuberance, uh, expressing familiarity with other people. What effect does this have? Like when it's being done on us, when it's being done on others, what kind of harm can be done, manipulation, And in this too, you might bring in the whole world of sexual energy that gets played out in conversations and with our words too. So using attraction and flirting and other kinds of, you know, just this is not so different than power, what I was talking about a moment ago. But just using it, looking specifically at praising and flirting and uh, yeah, other ways that we use affection and uh, like we're together to uh, as ways of you know communicating or controlling. Then number five is uh, noticing times of idle speech. 
speech where the content doesn't appear to have any lasting significance. Now sometimes what seems like idle speech actually has a really important purpose. It's actually a means to express love. So uh, it may be a, you know, kind of stupid thing like, nice day, huh? <laughs> but you look, you know, because you're observing speech this week or the next few weeks, and you look and you realize, actually saying, nice day, huh, was really basically expressing uh, we're two frightened beings in this world together in this moment, and I care about you, you know. And so that's not idle speech. That's an expression of love or, or, or compassion or mudita or something, depending on the particular flavor of the moment. And other idle speech, you know, is more neurotic. And um, when we look at it, uh, we see the stress behind it. Like when it's taking care of some underlying emotional need, basically keeping some emotional pain suppressed or repressed. And then number six is uh, noticing times where we leave things unsaid. So what's motivating the silence, like keeping the mouth shut, not saying what maybe we're inclined to say. How does fear affect what and how much we say? Notice our fear of disrupting the superficial social harmony. Like, I'm not going to say that because I'm not going to take the risk of any discomfort that might arise in that person or in me if I do say what I feel needs to be said or what I'm inclined to say. And how this is this short-term, long-term health. So, you know, we have communities, many multiple different communities, relationships, and how we are afraid of disharmony so that we act in ways that actually undermine the long-term harmony because we're afraid of momentary disharmony because we're saying something that needs to be said. So this is a great place to look in terms of our speech in the world. And just again, the one easy way to get at this is uh, caring more about the short-term ease of an interaction instead of seeing the relationship long-term. And really, as you're interacting with somebody, you're really seeing not just the short-term interaction, but you're investing in the long-term health of the relationship. You're seeing it in the long-term. Remember that uh, really, I thought, clever image that Robert Thurman uses. Um, he teaches in Columbia, Tibetan scholar. That Buddhist scholar. And he talks about, like, if you're on the subway in New York and you just have two stops and it's really crowded, your strategy for surviving is one thing, you know, just that kind of callous, you know, don't screw with me, you know, like, you don't look at people in the eye, you don't sort of express a undefended heart, you express a hardness, like, I am not someone to mess with. I'm not going to, you can't pull me in. But if if instead you were going to be in that subway, that crowded subway car for all of eternity, you would, you would probably develop a different kind of relationship with everybody there. Because it would just be too hard to bear. That callousness and closed-offness would be too hard to bear for eternity. We can survive it for ten minutes, but not for eternity. So imagine if we have that sense in our relationships that we're in it for the long haul, then uh, we might not leave so many things unsaid because we respect the relationship enough to want to you know, take care of business. Noticing how challenging it can be to say what we mean. I had an interesting experience when I was at one of the monasteries in Thailand practicing. And I forget... The monk, one of the senior monks asked me something. It might have been even something as simple as, uh, like in the afternoon, there's no food in the afternoon, but the monks had a lot of drinks that had been given them. And so, you know, as a layperson practicing there, 
you don't get anything unless one of the monks gives you something because nobody's offering you anything. So uh, so one of the monks, senior monks asked me, would you like something? And I, without thinking, you know, said something a little over the top, like, that would be great, or, you know, that would be wonderful. I can't remember what I said, but it was something like that. And, uh, you know, when you're not speaking a lot and then you say something, it kind of packs a punch because the emotional energy leaks a little bit when you're, when the container opens up. And, uh, and then he kind of, in a scolding, but really useful way, you know, he said, like, would it really be wonderful? I mean, you know, kind of, <laughs> it's not that big of a deal. And just kind of pointing out, like, uh, you know, I, I wish I could capture the exact dynamic, but you know how sometimes we, we bring an energy to the situation that's a little out of place. And, you know, we usually get away with it. No one's going to generally call us on it. But part of the integrity of right speech is just saying just the right amount, just the right tone, to fit the situation. We're not leaking other energy. And the reason we're not leaking other energy is we're taking care of it so that in the moment where we have to say something, there isn't, un, there isn't sort of a pressure there that's looking for release. You know, that's why it gets leaked out in situations where we, you know, we, you know, the classic example is, you know, you got a lot of unfinished business at work with your boss, but if you're never going to say it to her or him, so when you come home and your partner's just a sitting duck. <laughs> so you act it all out there with your dog or <laughs> somebody that isn't going to necessarily fire you. Or not immediately. <laughs> you hope. <laughs> so this is that, uh, like really looking at what, what are we, what do we mean to say? What's appropriate to say in that moment? Another area, so there's a lot, you can just look, but it's just kind of opening up the whole arena of right speech. It's like how you use questions. Because I've learned in my life that sometimes I use questions in a way that's kind of aggressive. And uh, and again, it's like this uh, another expression of this power play. But uh, like putting somebody in their place by asking questions. Or... Um, uh, yeah, using, yeah, using investigation and wanting to know, but it, it becomes done, it's done without concern for the other person. Not really taking them into account. So even when it's not even, not so much a power play, but it's, uh, dismissing the relationship that's going on. Because we've got this important thing to figure out. And it's like that's our excuse for forgetting that we're having a relationship here, we're having an interaction here. So I've seen harm in my life around that. Reflect on the ways you rely on restraint while speaking. How does this wholesome force of concern and regret operate in your life? So you want it now, I mean restraint in a very positive way. Like how you were inclined but you held back. And the safety that resulted from you not acting out that tendency, that intention in your mind, you knew better than thinking that intention had to be expressed, acted out in the world. And later, there's that wholesome regret, or that uh, non-regret in this case. Or if you didn't, you know, if you acted it out, then there would be wholesome regret, like, boy, I shouldn't have I have, I should have restrained myself. Please be careful. Next time you're in a situation like that, don't do what you just did. And then the other, you know, obvious thing we want to be reflecting on is all the beautiful ways, all the ways beautiful emotions are expressed through words, like kindness and compassion, joy, appreciation, gratitude, forgiveness. So that it's really an extension of that beautiful quality of the heart. It's like the flowering, the ultimate blooming of love is when it gets expressed, or compassion is when it gets expressed 
it's one thing to feel a lot of love, and that's quite beautiful, <clears throat> but in a way it's an even more resonant beauty when we find a way for it to express physically with words, with action out in the world. A more full flowering of it. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you know, that the definition of an appropriate response is when it arises, in a sense, effortlessly, because it's coming out of the whole. There's no sense of me trying to respond or say something that's appropriate. It just arises out of the whole, and it's a beautiful, appropriate response in that moment. And what's left is uh, the lightness of non-attachment or non-clinging and just be a kind of a very resonant release and trust that basically it's like a trust that the universe knows what it's doing. And the, the joy is the joy of not having to hold Atlas on our shoulders anymore, not having to be the good person, living the good life. But that nature, the universe, whatever you want to call it, knows what it's doing, that it's okay. It's okay to trust. So those are just some reflections that you can work with uh, in the next couple of weeks with wise speech. And like I said, we'll talk a little bit more. I'll talk a little bit more next week and we'll have small groups, but wanted to save the last seven minutes or so for questions or comments that you'd like to share with the group. I mentioned to Shelley earlier today this quote that I came upon a long time ago that I really like, and I think it's a nice way to kind of begin our investigation of right speech. It's from Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, if you don't want to be changed, don't go into dialogue. So, here we go, the dialogue. So what comes to mind? You know, I've seen this right speech in a political context where we're trying to decide people are going to make decisions for us, and, and you're seeing there's some two sides to the thing, and one side looks like it's negative and you know, messed up. Well, how can you do all this loving stuff? I'm thinking the, the word that comes to me is like, you know, paid professional liar for the 1%. That, that's how I see some of these people. Now, is that negative speech or screwed up or something? What's the. Well, you have to look because it's not so much about the words. But it's really this integrity from view to the underlying intentions that, that then lead to you saying or thinking, you know, paid liars for the 1%, top 1%. So you have to see where that's coming from because sometimes, uh, speaking our truth and really can, can come from this fearlessness and this wanting to protect and uh, take care of. And the mind, you know, like that sort of wisdom says, this is how it is, you know. But, but it doesn't, <clears throat> it doesn't, it isn't about hating those people because, you know, in the deeper sense, you'd, the mind would understand that those paid liars for the top 1%, that they're just confused and fearful in the same way that I understand. Because I see it. I've seen it in this heart. The same fear. The same kind of self-protection. You know, that's what they're doing. So one of the nice things about restraining ourselves when we're not sure is it's like the intention stays there. You know, like if we immediately act out our intention, it kind of disappears. It dissipates because it got expressed. But when we restrain ourselves from saying anything, the underlying view and intention tends to keep getting regurgitated, you know, like there's that impulse, that tendency to want to say it, but we're not saying it, we're restraining. So you get many times to take a look at it and get a sense like, is it coming from hatred or is it coming from compassion? And there's a, remember it's okay to do things that hurt other people, right? Because sometimes people need to be hurt. It wakes them up. And we're not responsible for not hurting people, but we don't want to intentionally harm people. 
We don't want to, I mean, language is funny. So we need a word that where the mind intentionally wants somebody to suffer. You know, that we don't want to do. But we want to act in ways that lead to people's long-term benefit. And sometimes what leads to somebody's long-term benefit is for somebody to say something that's really hurtful. Yeah, uh, like, uh, you know, many people have said things to me that are very hurtful, but I've been later very grateful to hear them because it, it helped me see something that I wasn't seeing. Yeah. Yeah, because I was relying on denial and, and not seeing something. And then when somebody points it out, there's that initial pain of embarrassment and shame of saying, oh yeah, my God, there's some truth to what they're saying. And I really don't want to own it, but it's too late because it's like out there now. And I've seen it. And so I can't go back to being in denial of it because it's been exposed. And that initial humiliation can be really painful. And you know, a lot of us, definitely in this camp, a lot of us are very attached to being seen as skillful and, uh, and good and wise. And so then when something happens or somebody is able to reflect back how we're not wise and not skillful, or even the possibility of that being true, you know, it can cause my heart to be uneasy for a while. There's real pain there. I have to really work with it. Like, oh yeah, that's the pain of the possibility of not being the person I imagine myself to be. And it feels like this. And I have to keep including it. And it, and it really slowly has teased out the mind's dependency on being a certain kind of person, being seen in a certain way. And that's really liberating to move in that direction. Any other thoughts before we end tonight? And we'll have more time for rich small group discussions next week. Yeah, Erica. Um, well, I just, I guess I just want to share two things. One was just that, like, when it really occurred to me that um, oftentimes I'll, my mind will want to plan, you know, what I'll say to someone and wanting it to be really wise and, and skillful, but there's a lot of suffering in that planning, um, and that it does feel so much better if you just kind of trust in the moment, you'll know what to say, um, and that innately if you're planning, you're just really putting a lot of sense of like the me who's going to figure out the right thing to say instead of like, kind of, like you were saying, trusting nature to kind of unfold in that moment. So that was one thing. And then the other thing I was going to share was just, um, I had kind of a cool moment the other day where I was, I'm starting to notice more and more what my mind, or what I say to myself, which is a lot less kind than what, what I say to other people. And I was just like watching myself just like be in a really negative place. And I was pretty aware of it. Um, and I was just this kind of awful but then I had this moment, and I haven't really had a lot of this before, but where I was just like, but I don't really have to keep doing this anymore. <laughs> like, I like I saw an option, and I, like, was actually, and then I, like, kind of, like, thinking about that sutra you talked about with the Buddha, um, the options you can do when you're dealing with your, your mind, I kind of tried to replace it with some kind of, like, self, like, some like positive things that had also happened that day and I was able to see how narrow that negative state was and like how almost deluded because it wasn't looking at this bigger picture of like like I was on this trip and seeing people who were really important to me in my life and like these kind of like larger like good it wasn't seeing that and it was really cool to like watch and be like oh but I could include this like I have a choice here yeah Excellent, great. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I had a thought when you were saying, um, Erica, about like over planning and, you know, the way you described it, fear was sort of governing the planning so that you were planning an interaction. But before, like, we can't always go to just trusting. So something you can do at the planning level is do it from a different intention. So, like, 
make the planning, so there you are imagining interaction, that in a way that can be your practice of doing it spontaneously. It's a, except now you're doing it with your imagination. So instead of it being governed by fear, like how can I do this interaction right, it's like let's let this interaction unfold in my imagination in a beautiful way. So all I have, the only thing I'm bringing to this interaction in my imagination is wise view, non-attachment. You know, so there it is. And you just see and you learn from it. So you can do planning in very skillful ways and you can do planning in very unskillful ways. So we want to plan from a liberated point of view. Like let it express itself as a movement of nature. Just like it does when we're not planning but actually doing the deed itself. So let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds and let go of the words.